0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of LSHTM Viral. My name is Amy Thomas. The Covid-19 pandemic affects each country differently. Healthcare structures, the government and the characteristics of that particular population will all influence the outbreak. In this episode we will be exploring key issues that low and middle income
1: countries are facing during this outbreak. People having to access soap and water is is not something that we can just take for granted.
2: Considering what's the appropriate response for different low and middle income countries that we
0: look at their context.
3: All of those information, you can only get it if you sequence the virus in Africa.
0: First, we speak to Dr. Michelle Khan from LSHTM. Michelle is an epidemiologist by training who focuses on improving systems for infectious disease control in low-income countries. Michelle has spent time in Asian countries like Cambodia and China, studying situations that are important during an outbreak.
2: The key challenge that I see in LMICs versus some of the higher income countries is the massive disease burden and health issues that they are having to tackle at the same time as COVID-19. The major challenge there is getting the balance right between putting limited resources towards mitigating or dealing with the challenges that are coming with COVID-19 versus making sure that you don't completely disrupt other ongoing health programs. The, the constraints are quite different. I'm a bit concerned that there's a lot of talk about ventilator capacity in low and middle income countries and that's been the case in the UK as well but in low and middle income countries ventilators is the end of a chain which assumes that you've got an ambulance system, you've got trained doctors, um, doctors that are specialists to be able to um, use those ventilators and infection prevention and control procedures. So there's, there's a huge amount um, of other aspects of the, of the health service that need to be in place. We, we need to ensure that when we're considering what's the appropriate response for different low and middle income countries that we look at their context the issues around decentralization and by that i mean provinces or states within a country having differences in the strength of their health system, some of the rural areas perhaps being weaker and then the coordination between them and a central body that was one of the challenges that we've that we found across both of these countries and it happens in in many countries each system has its own kind of disease burden issues as well which then influences how the health
1: system functions. Africa generally has a much younger population than Europe. This is Rashida Farand. Rashida is a professor
0: of international public health at LSHTM based in Harare, Zimbabwe.
1: The proportion of people over 60 years in in Africa in 2005 was around 5% compared to 20% in Europe. And we know that one of the risk factors for acquiring severe disease is age. But as we know that age is only one of the risk factors, the other concerns are people who are immunocompromised and people living with comorbidities. The populations I would be particularly concerned about are those who have got hypertension, diabetes and other chronic diseases, and an additional population that we need to really think about are people living with HIV. With respect to the latter, there is currently very little data about whether there is significantly increased risk, particularly in those who are well treated and who've got virological suppression of HIV. But there is clearly a very large population of people with HIV who are undiagnosed and uh, may have severe immunocompromise, and that would be a group I would be very concerned about.
0: And Michelle is concerned about other comorbidities too. Access to your regular supply of
2: medication is is critical. And again, if services are disrupted, then patients might not be able to. With TB as an example, what I'm really concerned about is that even having um, a month or two of disruption, how will that impact rates of drug resistance? And are we going to find that, hopefully, when we've come out of the main um, period of COVID crisis, that we find that a lot of the other infectious diseases have had sort of drug resistance issues emerging. And then that's going to take years to sort out. So again, this goes back to the comment about making sure we find the balance and uh, to maintain some of the essential services. I know that the WHO has already put out some guidelines around that and health programs within countries are thinking about what they need to do.
1: Strategies have to be really context specific. At the moment, there has been a severe disruption in all sorts of services, including transport services, healthcare services, and that is likely to have a very significant impact on people's ability to access healthcare and medication. So that is going to be a really key aspect of ensuring that people who have got chronic disease, including HIV, but other chronic conditions are protected. So that, that is something we absolutely need to prioritize. The other measures um, that are generally recommended, which include, you know, hand washing, social distancing, really need to also be observed. But clearly, there are issues with um, maintaining all of these in, in our setting, in a low-income setting, such as Zimbabwe. Clearly, one of the
2: key steps that needs to be taken to prevent an outbreak from really becoming a pandemic or even spreading within a country is for the first cases to be detected early and to be reported to the correct authority who can then take action now when information systems are weak for instance when we're using paper-based recording systems and we are in an area where um, there isn't regular communication from health facilities to the centralized body, it can easily take weeks for for cases to be notified and for action to be taken. So that's just a very, very practical example of of how things um, can go wrong. And then that's assuming that the health facilities that detect the cases are at least within the realm of the public health reporting system. If you've got a cluster of cases that have been detected, say, at a, a, a drug seller or a private provider, who's not even within the, within the system that's supposed to be reporting to the public sector, then it might actually not happen until much later. The coordination between different regions, potentially some regions that are really under-resourced with centralised bodies, both of those can really delay people finding out that there is a, that there is a problem and being able to respond to it quickly.
1: One, one of the key areas I'm concerned about is just the fact that I'm, a large proportion of the population, more than 70, 80% of the population are employed in the informal sector, which means that they are having to go out to work every day to earn money to, to eat. And one of the things that we've been hearing a lot of in the, in the work that we've been doing is people's concern about accessing food and um, the resultant food insecurity in a country where there's already been high pre-existing levels of food insecurity
2: even if you're trying to bring to communities the way perhaps you might do when there's been, say, an earthquake or a flood and you try and you know bring trucks full of food. But then if that gets people even for a short period within their communities to congregate, to, to be able to access the food, that could lead to infection spread. So, so we really need to think about making sure that none of the actions that we're taking could actually make things worse. Um, so there's a balance to be reached between acting quickly, which is really, really important, but also making sure that in our, um, in our haste that, that we don't take steps that, that within certain contexts could lead to more mixing or infection spread.
1: The other issues include I mean, the difficulties in people actually maintaining uh, the measures that have been recommended by the WHO. For example, um, we assume that you know social distancing is going to be possible in the north, but people live in very crowded households, and it may not be possible to maintain the distance that we are talking about. People having to access soap and water is is not. Something that we can just take for granted there's a lot of um, community based organizations that are currently unable to work and support communities with people being stuck indoors. there is going to be a significant risk of rise in uh, domestic violence alcohol use, and these are things that if there are no support services for, will have a lot of kind mm-hmm. of um, impacts adverse impacts on communities i I think we will have to focus on um, existing strategies that we know work. So one of the things is that we really need to rapidly upscale water and sanitation. This will not only have an effect on on decreasing the risk of transmission of SARS-CoV-2, but also a a beneficial impact on risk of transmission of other well-known infections. So that is clearly a priority. I think it's really important to maintain a, a concerted focus on ensuring that supply chains for drugs and diagnostics and primary healthcare services, etc., are all well maintained and people have access to, to care, clearly we need to be giving also correct, uh, context relevant messaging.
2: It will vary across countries, but some of some of the ideas from other countries is using community based informants. So there's often either community health workers, NGOs, or trusted people, religious groups, using those networks that already exist because we have to move fast. And also these networks are often the ones who are trusted. So some of the lessons that we can learn from from previous outbreaks is that trust is really important. So, you know, a doctor, a scientist in a lab coat or a space suit going out there and um, telling people to wash their hands or not go out or stop going to the the churches or mosques may not be out as well received as someone from the community saying that so using those community networks increasingly um, in low and middle income countries, social media is playing a bigger role so those platforms really should be used i would say anything that's more kind of voice based or animated so that people who do have lower literacy can also benefit simple things like that can make a big difference
1: one lesson we have learned in terms of uh, of reaching out to communities is to develop the messaging taking into account the voices of people living in communities and actually addressing head on some of the things that they're hearing and very much involving them in developing the messaging in the medium and longer term we really need to understand the epidemiology here compared to what's happened happening in the north there's much less testing and screening happening here. So we really have very limited understanding of how extensive community transmission is. And another thing I would like to mention is that, you know, because healthcare services have already been um, severely overwhelmed well before the uh, COVID-19 epidemic began, I suspect that we are going to find that people may well be reluctant to bring their, their ill relatives to hospitals or to clinics. And we may find that the number of deaths occurring in the home or in communities may be, may be much higher. And so we may end up underestimating deaths. That's just a guess, but uh, it's something that we've seen before. So it's going to be important to have good surveillance in the communities and to have a testing strategy that's feasible and and affordable in this context.
0: LSHTM also has two MRC units in Africa, including the Gambia, where they are actively working on COVID-19.
3: My name is Dr. Abdul Karim Sisse, and I head the genomics core facility at the MRC unit, the Gambia, at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I have... A couple of roles that I'm playing with COVID-19 is that the idea is that because we have a facility for sequencing, that every positive that we get in the Gambia, we will, um, once it's been detected as positive for COVID-19, to my team, we would sequence that. While there is very few cases, that's achievable because sequencing is it's quite expensive. But that's the idea is that if we have a positive in Gambia, I, my team will sequence it. So and having a facility to be able to generate data in real time when the, well there is an outbreak is a huge advantage because you can compare viral sequences from all over the world at the same time so you could say whether the virus in your setting is actually evolving quicker is it being more infectious and it, has it changed so those are important information that they important information for vaccine development for controlling outbreak for actually Contact tracing and actually telling how the, the virus is been transmitted. So how
0: so does, how does the unit sequencing, sequencing work? work? Tell, tell us how, how the, virus the virus has been transmitted.
3: What do you, what has been happening so far in terms of how do you look at how the transmission evolve and how the the virus is actually been transmitted to people is that you can actually make a guess on like travel. You said. You contact A, contact B, and um, A got it from um, B, those kind of things. But what you don't, you can't tell for sure, and you can only do that with sequencing, which is because it's like a fingerprint. You can actually say, this person got it from this person, and this came from China, or it came from UK, or it came from France, because as the virus is moving through, it keeps keeps its unique fingerprint. And you can go back and say, ah, The virus that we have in Africa have evolved quicker than what happens in UK. I mean, we have different comorbidities. In the West, we talk about um, the susceptibility of older people and people with underlying condition. In Africa, we have different comorbidity. There's other infections. So how does this affect a TB patient? Does the virus move and evolve quicker because your immune system is much lower in a HIV patient, for example? All of those information, you can only get it if you sequence the virus in Africa. And also when you develop a vaccine, the vaccine that you develop has to make sure that that vaccine works with the virus that's in Africa, that's has infecting people in Africa. If you don't do that, you could actually introduce vaccine that will probably not work.
0: So does that mean the, the sequence for the virus in different countries is different?
3: Well, it evolves. So it started in Wuhan, but the Wuhan virus has now got a, a signature for the first person that took it to so, um, America. So you can actually follow. So for example, in UK, there might be the ones that came directly from Wuhan. There might also be ones that came from Italy or France. You can trace that. It means the fingerprints. What you do is that if you introduce another mistake, actually, we we'll look at it as a mistake. If You introduce a mistake in spelling from one person to the next person, if they tell them to copy uh, information and they copy, they make one mistake, you can actually say, ah, it's so-and-so that's, that's made that mistake. So you can actually trace it that way. So you can say, it started in Wuhan, the virus that is actually affecting Sheffield was the one from Italy, not the, directly from the one from Wuhan. You can do that with sequencing. So the technology that we use are varied. We have um, at least three technologies in the unit. We're very fortunate. I've got um, first generation to third generation um, sequencing in the lab, and the third generation is what I, I get very very excited about because um, this is this was developed in UK by Oxford Nanopore, and what is really great when during the um, Ebola um, um, outbreak. Well, post the Ebola outbreak because the, the sequencing were done after the outbreak, not in real time. And again, this same technology was used for Zika sequencing as well. So um, you can have a portable um, sequencer, which actually means you can take it to the field. You need very little. Once you got all the reagents that you need, that you've got to get from UK, you can take it out to the field.
0: And coordinating this technology from the field to the lab is not all that Abdul is doing in the Gambia.
3: We happen to by accident to become the only um, place that do the testing. The minister asked for my help to for the MRC to give me permission to go and help them to set up their own lab, um, which is not far from us so I'm actually involved in making sure that um, the, the the government also have a testing facility because in the end at the moment cases are low, but once we the cases get higher, uh, more hands to the pump I think and so really supporting the the government. To be able to do that is one step. I mean, there's other things that I can't, but that's one thing that I'm doing at the moment. So I'm running my sequencing team. I'm supporting the, the detection team and also trying to get make sure that the, the government, the National Public Health Lab can do testing.
0: And the MRC unit in The Gambia is even building a temporary treatment structure for COVID-19, as well as involving women in the community to help make face masks.
3: We are the only two isolation wards in the country. After two, what do you do if you've got more than two cases? So I think the, the units, which actually quite bravery, make a decision that we don't wait for um, the government, but we could do something because we can in- increase from our 2 to 20. That's still small, I mean, compared to what they've done in the in UK. It's small, but it's a start. I mean, and you have to start somewhere. People are trying their best. And again, we have scientists. I mean, and it's the most concentrated of scientists probably in most of Africa in the unit. So I think that um, if we all put our head together, and the scientific problem becomes a, a public health problem and solution. So I think it's a good initiative. And the director is working very, very hard to make sure most of the, the senior managers are all here still. So they are here with their family. So it's a Gambian problem, but it's their problem.
0: And Abdul believes there's a lot of enthusiasm from the scientists on the ground that want to help the pandemic. But this isn't just a scientific problem.
3: You know, coming from UK, spending my life in UK and the way um, people behave in the West, OK, we like queuing and we do things the proper way. I think one of the really worrying parties there that at the moment people think, because there's only very few cases, people think it's not a problem. I think that's, I would say maybe 90% of the Gambians think it's not a problem, which is which is worrying. I think it's very, very important that um, there is one voice, and the voices are what I would call um, educated voice, so they 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 know what they say. Because fake news, I mean, I look look at my niece and nephews and cousin. Um, most of the information that we discuss, which uh, they throw at me, are fake news. They, it's what they, they believe, is what they spread. And I think we need to learn a lot about how do we communicate to young people, because I don't think we do that very well.
1: Some of those you know, things that are being put out on media are, are frankly dangerous. And, and I think one of the clear messaging that has to go out there is to kind of inform people about things that work and things that don't work. I mean, an example is people believing that the communities are not at risk because BCG vaccination is so widespread. There's also this idea that because people have lived in malarious areas and been treated as children with chloroquine, that they will be protected. And such information is really incorrect and needs to be addressed and the messaging needs to again as i'd like to stress you know needs to be very clear people are obviously very fearful and, and there is a lot of panic and that is perpetuated with what we are hearing on social media um, and your social media is unregulated and and i think the overall Feeling because we are we are being so hit by so much information, largely coming from the north, I would like to say, um, is that COVID, you know, SARS-CoV-2 infection equals death. And we really need to be clear about what the risks are, and that the majority of people who experience uh, this infection are going to be okay. And that is an important message to get out there so that people are not panicked
2: what the COVID-19 um, health emergency has really shown us is that in terms of where good responses and expertise have come, it's not really split across high-income country versus low- and middle-income country, um, but actually there's a lot that can be learned from some of the low- and middle-income countries. So Vietnam, I understand, has been very, very active in tackling issues around fake news or rumors, which is a huge challenge across across the world, really, but particularly um, in low and middle income countries where perhaps people don't um, have as high literacy levels to be able to verify the story or something that they've heard, say, from a friend or a family member, it can become really, really challenging and, and concerning for them. Then South Africa's been very proactive in uh, making sure that Hand washing facilities and hygiene is supported, particularly in communities where there's there's messages going around about regular hand washing, but then are the facilities there for them to be able to do that? So those are some examples, and then already we see one of the major innovations from China, which was their makeshift hospitals. We see that happening um, in the UK as well. So so there's definitely been cross learnings. Um, from other LMICs and, and really innovations
3: that they've had to bring in. I mean, the sort of technology that I'm really pushing for that we're doing in the unit, in place with other technologies that are quite expensive, they're quite easy technology, they're not expensive. For the Minion that I'm talking about, this portable sequencer, you can have access to it for $1,000. It's not a lot. I think te- the, uh, having um, personnel that are trained to do it, are the difficult ones. But I think that once we go more labs and we have hubs, I'm thinking I'm not planning to run all the sequencing, but if I train somebody to do it, then my life is easy because that means that person can take his sample and sequence it. I don't have to do it. So my idea about even setting up a hub means is that training people, having a technology that's so easy to, to transfer, not expensive, so it doesn't need a huge infrastructure to set it up, then we all can do this. You can have a mobile sequencing center. In uh, an African center, it means you can move it to another African country, which is mobile. The most important thing which you touch on is that um, even what we're doing, what I'm doing, needs to be explained to people. What does it mean? So we don't do this science behind a silo that people don't understand. Because I think you can make people understand what you do. Because I can tell, all I'm trying to do is to fingerprint the virus, too, so you know what it touches, and who it touches, and how it touches people. We need to be able to do that regularly, but even in different languages, so that people understand what we are trying to do. And so it doesn't become a scientific problem. It's actually a public health problem, and we're trying to solve and support. We need to communicate better with what we do.
0: So as you heard there from Abdul, Rashida and Michelle, communication is a key player in tackling COVID-19 in low and middle income countries. As well as this, each response needs to be context specific, taking into consideration the people in each setting. As COVID-19 spreads worldwide, LSHTM staff are working tirelessly to help combat the pandemic. Our researchers have been working overtime to try and understand the disease while working with us to communicate responsibly to the public. However, we need support so our researchers can continue their real-time response. With your help we can increase understanding, improve the global response efforts and ensure that the latest insights are effectively communicated. To make a donation please visit our website lshdmacuk forward slash coronavirus and all funds will be used to support LSHTM's response to the crisis. If you want to learn more about COVID-19, you can also sign up to our free online course in partnership with FutureLearn. It's the most popular science course the platform has ever done, and you can find more information about that on the website as well. Thank you again for listening. Take care and stay tuned for the next episode.